Hello everyone and welcome back to Footprints. This month we're literally taking a deep dive under Bath and looking at its geology. I'll be visiting a working stone mine and seeing some 200 year old graffiti and if you're someone who enjoys hearing about 16 tonne chainsaws you're going to absolutely love this feature. Mike Williams will be telling us what the impact the rocks beneath our feet have had on the landscape and on our ecology, and he'll show us petrification in action. But first, let's meet William Smith. He is known as the father of geology, as he was the first to map out the layers of rocks when he worked for the Somersetshire Coal Canal. My name is Maurice Tucker. I'm a carbonate sedimentologist. In other words, I study limestones. I have studied limestones pretty much since I was about seven. And I study limestones any age, any part of the world. And I have done for a very long time. So for the last 12 years, I have been attached to Bristol as a visiting professor. And down here in Bath, where I live, I like to look at limestones and especially I look at Bath Stone. William Smith is one of my heroes, I, I think I'd say. A hero because basically he started out from ordinary beginnings, nothing special at all. Um, back in the 1760s, 1769 he was born. Sadly his father died when he was very young. But eventually he became a surveyor, a land surveyor. And he started working for a company that was interested in building canals and draining farmland. And he became good at what he was doing. And then he came down from Oxfordshire, where he was born, and the Cotswolds. He came down to this area around Bath, towards the Bristol and Somerset coalfield. And there he started to become interested in rocks and in coal, especially and eventually that led on to the Somerset Coal Canal Company employing him to plot the routes of canals, two canals, to bring the coal from Radstock and Camerton towards Bath to connect with the Kennington and Avon Canal to make transport of coal much easier. So in walking around the countryside, William Smith, looking for a route for the canals, he realised that he was seeing the same rocks. And then when he went up and down hills and valleys, he realised he could see different layers of rock. And in those days, there were loads of fossils. So he started collecting fossils. And he realised that different layers had different fossils. Sometimes only a little bit different, but they were different. And he then realised he could actually recognise the different layers of rock based on their appearance, but also on their fossils. And out of this came the idea you could use fossils, basically, to date the rocks and show the order in which they were deposited. He became so good at recognising these different rocks he started making a map. Uh, first of all, his very first map was 1799, 
was the first geological map of anywhere. It was five miles around Bath. And what he did, we took a tourist map, because, of course, in those days, Bath was extremely popular with people visiting. So he had a tourist map, and he drew on that tourist map in 1799 the different layers of rock that he'd seen around Bath. But he started travelling further afield in Britain and in collecting information. And in 1815, he published the first geological map of England and Wales. Very famous map. And that's what we remember William Smith for, for being the first person really to create a geological map. And the amount of effort he put into it was really amazing. Uh, and it was a long time before the geological community recognised uh, his contributions. It was a bit sad, really, that he wasn't honoured earlier. This is a uh, facsimile of his map. This is a map which anybody can buy, actually, from the British Geological Survey. It's a very large map, actually. The original map is six foot by eight foot, so it's a pretty big map. The exciting thing about the map, though, like to me, is a piece of, it's a work of art. Look at the colours, the way he's chosen the colours. They look really spectacular, I think. A lot of effort went into painting the map, all done hand-coloured originally, of course, and each colour representing the different layers of rock that you can see in England and going into Wales. So the map is really very special. Only 400 were printed in 1815. It, in those days, the maps and other books and things were printed by subscription. So he had to persuade people to give him some money before he'd finished the project, uh, and then it was eventually printed. But unfortunately today, we only have 40 copies of the map that we know of. People have compared, of course, William Smith's maps with modern maps, and they are surprisingly accurate. He must have travelled almost every inch of the countryside. And the thing about a geological map, of course, it tells you what's at the surface. What you have to then appreciate is you can look at the map, and if you know which way the beds, the rocks, are dipping, you can think about what's happening under the ground. So one of the things William Smith did was draw some cross-sections. You can see one here, which is a cross-section going from Snowdon in Wales right the way down across the country, down to the southeast, down towards the Isle of Wight, if you like. But he realised that all the rocks were dipping and they were doing things under the ground and being faulted. Remarkable. He really had the foresight when he was looking at the landscape. Where we are here in Bath, all our rocks pretty much around us are from the Jurassic period. Now, everybody will have heard of Jurassic, of course. But the Jurassic lasted quite a long time, about 50, 60 million years. And, and so a lot of things were happening during the Jurassic time. Uh, people know about ichthyosaurs and pliosaurs, etc., and ammonites. And where we are here, down near the river in, in Bath... This is where we have rocks of the lower part of the Jurassic, where you can, if, you're, if you have um, a lot of luck and you keep your eyes open, you can see the rocks which contain things like ammonites, pieces of ichthyosaur, animals that lived in, in the deeper water. 
So that's in the area near where we are here along Bath Riverside. Deeper water rocks from the early Jurassic, the same ones you can see at Lyme Regis and Charmouth down in Dorset. These are the same rocks, so they have a lot of fossils. And if you went on the cycle route towards Bristol from Bath, you go, uh, eventually you go across the river at Saltford, and then just two, three hundred metres further, on the right, you'll see those same layers of limestone and shale that you get in Lyme Regis. And there, there are some huge ammonites there along at Saltford. Just by the old railway line on your right, they are about 50 centimetres across. Three or four spectacular ammonites there. So that's down near the water here in Bath. If you go up the hillsides in Bath, then the rocks begin to change. So if you know Bath and you walk up the hills, up Lansdowne, or if you went up Wellsway, then you may know you walk up a hill and it gets steep. You may think of Beach and Cliff. You may think of Beacon Hill and Camden. It gets a bit steep there and then it flattens off. Well, when it first gets steep, then we have a limestone. And that limestone you can see in the cliff just above the railway station, Beach and Cliff, where Jane Austen liked to walk with her friends. Now that is a limestone, and it's full of corals and shells. From there, from Beach and Cliff, if you then walk further up Wellsway, or up Prior Park Road, then it flattens off, and then towards the top, when you get near Coombe Down, Odd Down, it gets much steeper again. And that's because we've come to another limestone, which is pretty hard. And that is the Bath Stone, the Grey Toolite. That's the one which everybody was digging out of the ground back in the 19th century especially. But they're still, of course, digging out Bath Stone for buildings today. Time is, um, is strange. For a geologist, we don't worry too much about the exact numbers of millions of years things are, are old. We tend to think in more general terms, but it's true to say geological processes take place very slowly, but oh, if you've got plenty of time, then a lot of big things can happen. So at the moment, for example, North America is moving away from us, but only by a couple of centimetres a year. That's not much. But um, if you think about it, it's been moving away from us for probably 200 million years. If you go back 200 million years, America was right next to where we are. We were all one big continent. But if you've got plenty of time, geological processes can create very special features. Just mentioning the opening of the Atlantic Ocean, you can say the same thing about the formation of mountains. Gradual crumpling up of sedimentary rocks, squeezing them, forcing them up to give rise to mountains. It takes place very slowly, but we've got plenty of time. It's amazing to think, if you went to Mount Snowdon here in Wales, you could find fossils on the top of Mount Snowdon. But what's more impressive is if you went to Mount Everest, 29,000 feet or so, 8,000-something metres, you can find fossils on the top of Mount Everest. That's incredible. To me, that's incredible that you think that Mount Everest was once down at sea level. But, as I say, 
We've got plenty of time in geology, and, and even though, as you may know, the Himalayas formed by the collision of India bashing into Tibet, and that didn't geologically happen very long ago, something like 30 million years ago, India met up with Asia, created the Himalayas. But that's enough time to fold up all the rocks, lift them up, and then we have the situation we have today. The geological processes are going on all the time. And we've seen that, of course, just recently in Iceland, when we had those volcanic eruptions. And if you looked at the pictures in the news, you could see that cracks opened up and then the magma came pouring out. But those cracks are where the, the earth is splitting apart. That's where there is a boundary between plates. Iceland, one half of it really belongs to North America, and the other half belongs to Europe. And it's splitting down the middle. That's where new crust is being formed. And it can happen very quickly. But what you find in many places, volcanoes erupt every few thousand, tens of thousands of years, and then they do a lot of activity, and then they may be quiet for a long time. So some geological processes can happen quickly, but they don't happen continuously at those fast rates. In Bath, the people have been, as you can imagine, with William Smith, been interested in geology for a very long time, as well as astronomy, of course, with the Herschels. And the Bath Geological Society has been going for 50 or more years. We are a group of 80 to 100 people who are interested in geology. We have a, a talk every month during the winter time. We tend to have the talks on Zoom these days, but in the summer months, we have a talk every month that's live. But we also have field trips. We go to places around Bath or further afield. Just a few months ago, I took a field trip to South Wales near Penarth and Barry, and we were looking for dinosaur footprints. We found hundreds of footprints there, and everybody was very excited apart from the weather, it was poor moraine. But um, we also sometimes go down to the Dorset coast, where, again, you can find lots of things of interest. If anybody is interested in joining the Bath Jolsock, you can always go to our website and have a look, and they'd uh, be very welcome to come along. We have our meetings, our talks in the BRLSI on Queen Square, and um, it's always a, a pleasant occasion to get together and talk about rocks. Thanks there to Professor Maurice Tucker. And if you're interested in joining the Bath Geological Society, you can find the details in the show notes. Now, let's get out and about and see what Mike Williams, a landscape historian and ecologist, has to tell us about the landscape surrounding Bath City Farm. To start with, the, the local hills, they're kind of capped with this, uh, this hard limestone, which um, is a type of limestone called oolite, that was laid down in the Jurassic period. So the, the softer soils around them uh, have eroded over time, but the, the hard limestone caps have stayed, creating this uh, brilliant topography that we've got here right now. And this has actually been used by people, especially in the Iron Age. So we've got over there, you can see Salisbury Hill over there. And over on, on Lansdowne, we've kind of got this little outcrop that we call Little Down Hillfort. And these got um, big limestone cliffs around them that are really, really useful defensive features. 
that they also quarried the limestone and uh, built walls to make the defences even stronger. And so it's these hills that probably attracted people here in the Iron Age uh, to settle. And they would actually live inside these hill forts. Uh, there's a geophysical survey of Salisbury Hill where they found numerous um, uh, remains of roundhouses in there. So we know that there were people living there. We don't actually know if they lived there all the time, but certainly during times of war they would, uh, they would retreat to there. Over at Twerton Round Hill, uh, we've got a hard limestone cap on there, but all, all of the, uh, the surrounding hillside is eroded. And for many, many years, people wondered if this hill was man-made. There's actually this bit of folklore that's recorded in the 18th century that the devil was passing by with a wheelbarrow full of rubbish from Oddown. And he was growing weary and he dumped it in Twerton, creating the hill. <laughs> um, Equally fantastical, a local architect, John Wood, uh, believed it was the burial place of King Bladdard. But now we know it's, uh, it's actually a natural formation. And other people have speculated that it was a, you know, a burial place or probably some important Bronze Age chieftain or something, but it's a completely natural hill. Does the geology impact on wildlife and biodiversity at all? A great deal, actually. So the soil around Bath is, is mostly calcareous or alkaline, has a high pH. And this is due to the, the weathering and erosion of the, the limestone rocks, which leads to particles of the, the limestone uh, mixing in with the soil. When the soil is more thin and porous, the nutrients tend to get washed down the slope. You've got this nutrient-poor, thin soil. When you think about uh, growing your vegetables and in your garden or your allotment, you tend to think deep soils with high nutrient soils are, are what you want, which is great for individual plants, great for growing your pumpkins, in, but it's, it's not good for biodiversity. The best things for biodiversity are actually these nutrient-poor and thin soils. When you've got high nutrients, you tend to get plants of very vigorous growth, sort of dominating the area and excluding everything out. Whereas on these more sort of extreme conditions of the, the thin and uh, nutrient-poor soil, nothing has the, the, the strength to, to compete too strongly with each other. And you tend to get much more things just hanging on in there. And it creates one of the most biodiverse um, habitats that we have in, in the UK. Up to, I think, 40 species per square metre is a figure that's often quoted. What we get at the top of these slopes, uh, we tend to get uh, finer grasses, so that's things like quaking grass and really sort of calcium-loving plants such as uh, wild thyme, uh, ladies' bed straw and common rock rose. And these, of course, in turn attract other things as well, such as uh, invertebrates, often that are specialists on these plants. So you've got this whole ecosystem that is there simply because of the uh, the underlying rock and of course it changes as, as we go down the slope we've got thicker uh, clayier soil and the clay soil often tends to get a lot more waterlogged things don't get washed down so much and you tend to get uh, more tussocky grasses and bigger stands of nettles and uh, and brambles and, um, and thistles and things like that so it creates a completely different habitat further down so when you're out on a walk, Mike, can you tell by what's growing in a place what sort of soil is it's growing in? To a certain extent, yeah. Uh, there's probably people who can do it better than I can. But 
the habitat certainly is very different here uh, to uh, somewhere on acid soil, which is often formed due to uh, things like granite um, mixing in with the soil particles. There you tend to get more sort of heather, sort of heathland, different types of grasses. So, You're a landscape historian. How has the landscape changed then over the years? How, what, what have people said about it in the past, the bath landscape that you think is not the same now? Plenty has changed over the years, but uh, one thing uh, that we know from early landscape descriptions is there were a lot, a lot more rocks lying around in the fields. I think John Wood mentioned some over Brassknocker Hill that were used for road building and, and for grottos and uh, garden ornaments. A lot of stone walls have been built out of the, the things that they would have found lying around in the fields. Some of the buildings, like barns and things like that, would have been built out of the rocks. And, of course, these rocks would have added a bit more diversity to the environment of the uh, the fields. So you would have had things growing on top of the rocks, such as uh, lichens and some small plants. Uh, there would have also been basking habitats for uh, reptiles and uh, insects. Uh, so how biodiverse is Bath? We do have some very, very biodiverse areas are quite untouched so unimproved uh, limestone grasslands such as we've got a nice one over Midford slopes of Salisbury Hill some of these fields and lands down absolutely fantastic such as this slope over here we've got trees of Kelston Roundhill up there and then below it you've got this really steep slope which you couldn't get a horse-drawn or oxen-drawn plough up there and that's just been left and that is one of the most beautiful bits of grasslands that we've got. I know you want to show me a petrifying spring now, Mike, so just before we go down there, tell us what that is. So the the water from uh, the issues from the spring has been through the, all the rocks and collected up all, all the small particles of calcium. And then when it comes out, anything in the spring bed often gets these small particles of calcium carbonate stuck to it and over time it'll build up and so you get things like nuts and uh, snail shells um, twigs and anything left in the spring bed uh, eventually becomes coated in what's effectively lime scale it's the same thing that clogs up your kettle um, in, in hard water areas like bath okay so we're going to have a look at that and on the way we're going to see an ammonite let's go Can you see that? Oh, look. So those ridges in this stone, that's, that's uh, the imprint of a, probably quite a large ammonite, which was a, a sea-dwelling organism in the Jurassic period that, uh, that would have lived here when, when Bath was under sea, probably about 190 million years ago. One of my favourite examples, actually, is uh, something that the, uh, the Neolithic people who lived around Bath would have found fascinating. If you go over to near Willow, there's a, a Neolithic long barrow, a burial chamber uh, called Stony Littleton. And just by the side of the entrance, there is a dinner plate sized imprint of an ammonite. So they must have put that there deliberately. They must have ah. thought it was fascinating. They certainly attributed something important to it. So we're gonna make our way down now to a spring. See if we can find some pet. 
petrification. We got the spring bed down here and anything in the spring bed tends to get coated in this uh, sort of calcium or lime scale and uh, it has the appearance of it turning to stone. So here we are. Um, I've collected a few things from the bed of the spring that have been coated with, uh, with calcium. So we've got a few twigs here. Oh, well you wouldn't know they were twigs now, would you? No, uh, only by the shape of them. Slightly more interesting, we've got a few hazelnut shells. Yes. That you can see are in the process of being coated with the calcium. They probably fell in the autumn. Uh, they look like they've been eaten by a squirrel. Yes. and they've just been left in the bed and they're now starting to get this coating of calcium. We've got this which has probably been there a while, this is a snail shell. Oh that's quite thick that coat isn't it? Yeah that's probably been in there a few years I think. And then we get these large lumps of multiple things that have been coated in calcium stuck together. And I expect these would have been really prized in the 18th 19th century when people were building these grottos of uh, natural curiosities there's a, a bit of wood that's been in there oh, and it's broken and yes. you can actually see the wood inside oh look you can yes that's a wren singing they have this sort of really fast bit in the middle of their core um, And there's a robin singing over there as well, which has more of sort of a more of a melancholy call. Oh, thank you, Mike, for showing me that. Oh, no problem. Now it's time to go underground. I met up with Simon Hart, managing director and owner of Harton Park Bathstone in Corsham. Bathstone has been mined here since 1810 and stone from this mine has been used to build Cheltenham Town Hall, Bristol Central Library and even a part of Buckingham Palace. Later on you'll hear the voice of the command supervisor Adrian Boniface but we'll start with the end of the safety briefing. Remember don't hesitate to wear your self-rescuer in any situation where there is an indication of the products of combustion or when told to do so by an official of the mine. It is the main protection you have. Right, so what have I got? I've got, I've got my high-vis jacket, I've got my self-rescuer, and I've got my special boots. Good, we're all set. Brilliant. Okay. Right way. Oh, and I've got my helmet, of course. With my cap lamp. I'm at the entrance and there's this great big, well, so it's a staircase on the left built out of stone and a winch with two rails either side, winched cable in the middle and it's a tunnel. It's just like going into the underground in London, except there's no escalator. So uh, this is one, one of the original shafts. So this one dates back to 1899. So 166 steps, I think it is, to the, uh, uh, to the bottom. So just keep hold of the handrail and we'll steadily make our way down. draft 
on the back of your uh, neck now, so that's the uh, ventilation, so that's some of the fresh air that we're actually pulling down into the mine. Last few steps. So we're now uh, 20 metres underground at this point here, so this is the uh, pit bottom. Um, so we'll start making our way through the workings and I'll show you what we do. I can hear some noise. Just tell me how long this stone mine's been open. When did it first open? So the earliest record of stone mining here was 1810. This follows on after Ralph Allen. So Ralph Allen first extracted the stone from the Coombe Down, and then with the expansion of uh, Bath stone mining over, over the centuries, they then uh, opened up areas in around the Corsham area. Tell you what, it's an assault on the senses, isn't it? It's dark, it's wet, and suddenly out of the gloom comes a huge dumper truck. There's all this noise. So this is our uh, Fantini uh, chainsaw. So we've got two of these on site. So they're uh, fantastic bits of kit. Uh, a giant 16, 17 tonne chainsaw with a uh, bar on it that's uh, two meters long. And then we use a tungsten carbide-tipped uh, chain that we use to cut the bath stone out. So back in the day, the old hands would have used a hand saw to cut the stone out. So this is just the uh, modern equivalent. So what we're trying to do is cut the stone up into two-meter uh, cube blocks. And once the cuts have been put in place, we then use something called a hydro bag, which is a big uh, metal uh, balloon uh, which is slid into the saw cut. That's then pumped full of water, which exerts 300 tons of pressure and then can split the stone off its natural bed. And then we can come in with the uh, diggers and, actually, and the forks and actually take the whole block of stone out and uh, transport it out of the mine. How much does each stone weigh? Each stone, depends how big we can get them out, but normally in the region of, yeah, eight to 10 tons. been stopped so we can have a look at the blade which is going two meters down into the ground so this is the uh, the chainsaw tips here so we're using uh, tungsten carbide uh, teeth they might be a bit warm but uh, the teeth on here last about a year oh this is called the pollard shaft Another huge tunnel off to the left. Oh, what's that noise? That's the dumper truck coming back. Well, oh, that's quite scary, isn't it? There's another piece of kit. What is that? So that, that's the uh, drill rig that we use for putting the uh, rock bolts into, into the roof. So, um, yeah, the rock bolts are 1.8 metres long. So, as I said, the hole's drilled and then one of these rock bolts is in, inserted in there. Wow. The rock bolts are all at the back waiting. The drill is at the front waiting. Oh, my goodness, a curtain is being drawn back and we're walking through a lake.
So uh, back in March 2019, as we were going along, all of a sudden a hole opened up in the face. And what we found behind was some old workings which uh, were previously hadn't been mapped. We had no knowledge that they were there. And this area behind us has basically been preserved as a, almost like a time capsule, never been seen before. And it's just a wonderful example of how they used to extract stone back in the day. Yeah, so we'll go on in and have a look and uh, Adrian will join us and can talk you through some of the processes. Look at this. Steps hewn into the rock, leading up to a rope tear, and of course I can't quite see where we are. Oh, oh, a cavern. We're in a cavern. Oh, the person who found this must have been quite excited. Oh, a light appears. And we have the command supervisor. So, Adrian, how long have you been working in this mine? In this mine since 1999. Okay, so it's quite a long time. Yeah, 25th year on this site. Yeah. Yep, yep. Tell me about the old ways. What's so different about then to now? The way we work now is it's the same principles, but we do it a different way. So it's, it's more mechanical. Um, back in the days when this was worked, it was all done by hand. So hand saws, a lot of um, picking with a pickaxe or a what was known as a jadding iron, which was like a long bar with a chisel on the end. Today, it's, it's all done with a machine. But you'll see um, a series of tables on the wall. And the old quarrymen used to, every time they produced a block, they'd chalk it on the wall, what size it was in cubic feet. And then they have a, have a tally going at the end of the week or the end of the pay period. They could total it up, and they knew if they got, let's say, six months a cubic foot, and they produced so many cubic feet, they'd know exactly how much they how much they would expect to get in wages. Okay. And did they make much in those days? Um, it was regarded as quite a well-paid job. I think you know, probably 100, 200 years ago, it was reckoned to be twice what an agricultural worker would get. Okay. What have we got here? I think it's to the captain of Her Majesty's ship. And then there's a name, Malta. And I think that's Akrotiri on the end. Well, I think if you reference it, it was a, um, it was a French ship that was seized by the British in Malta. And it was renamed and, um, you know, it was part of the British fleet for some time afterwards. Just a piece of social comment, I think. You know, one of the quarries where I worked, one of the old bits, you know, they had uh, by-election results and things like that. And do the current guys put graffiti on the walls? Uh, I tend to scorn upon it. <laughs> but, you know, if they'd had the same philosophy as me back in those days, we wouldn't be looking at this now. Exactly. What would they write then, the current lot? I'm not quite sure. You will find <laughs> you will find some quite rude things yeah. in some of the old quarries, and okay. you know, um, it quite shocked me when I first started exploring some of these places. You know, 35, 36 years ago. Mm. Okay, so if you imagine we have a flat face in front of us, so this is about um, four meters wide, and we're about uh, three meters vertically. Mm -hmm. And what they would do at the very top, so they would pick a slot and then that would enable them to free the block up. So the picking was done first 
and what they would do is start with a pick with a short handle and as they got further and further in they'd put a longer handle on the pick to enable them to get to reach the back so once this slot would, was done it would give them space to be able to get a saw in to then cut down vertically so there'd be a series of vertical cuts across the face but the block was then still attached at the back and they would drive wedges into the bedding plane at the front and hopefully the block would snap off at the back they'd put what's called a lewis pin uh, into the front of it which is a dovetail type thing with an eye on the front then they would pull that with a hand crane so wherever the hand crane was um, they would pull the rope out connect it onto the front once they'd lifted it off snapped it off lifted it up a little bit they would then pull that block out so if you can imagine, there's a space here, what is that, a little more than two feet wide and probably two and a half feet high. A man would then get into that space. No. Yes, and he'd proceed to cut along the back wow. in that direction, then in that direction. Back-breaking work. Probably kept them fit, though. Now, in sort of like the modern era, where we are now, everybody drives a machine and then we go to the gym at night. Well, <laughs> let's kill two birds with one stone and yeah. do it all during the day. But I suppose it's slower. It is slower, yes. Yeah. And obviously it's dark. It's pretty much been dark everywhere we've been that we've had to use these lamps. What did they have then? Well, 200 years ago when this was worked, they would have used tallow candles, which give off quite a pong when you burn them. Um, so not a great deal of illumination. Uh, later on, they moved over to oil lamps. And then after that, carbide lamps. And, you know, for the last 60, 70 years, it's all been electric. So that guy you were talking about getting into that tiny two-by-two two yep. space, did that by tallow light? Indeed, yes, tallow candles, yeah. Tallow candle light. If you look underneath... You can actually see a black mark, black soot mark on oh, my lamp. Yeah, point. So that was where they would have put a candle in the little oh. ledge for illumination. And also you'll see some soot lines yeah. uh, across the roof. Uh, the picker was the highest paid person and he had a different rate. So when he had finished picking out his picking over the top of the block, he would quite often mark it with his candle, a soot line. So there's never any dispute about the amount of work that you've done yeah. and what you yeah, got paid. Yep. So this whole ceiling is absolutely full of soot marks, one of which is a long line, dots. yeah, a series of black dots where the candles were. It is a museum in itself down here, isn't it? This is, there's a lot to see in a very small space here. The earliest, the earliest date we found here is just behind you and you'll see it up on the roof there. So that's soot from a candle. It's uh, 1822. We're going up a steep slope into the dark again. So this whole area here and also further back was uh, used by the MOD during the Second World War for uh, the storage of uh, munitions. So um, what they typically did in some of these old bathstone mines when they went, uh, went into them, they would uh, get rid of a lot of the backfill and also level the floor out as well. Uh, they'd whitewash the walls and put uh, uh, electric lighting up. 
and then they would use them for um, storage of, well, in this particular area, they used to store naval shells down here. I don't think I'll ever forget this, Simon. <laughs> well, you think about it, 10 people work down here. So, for most of the rest of the world, they have no idea what it's like. No. And some of the guys here, they've worked together for over 30 years now. So they're a very uh, experienced team that we've got on site. They must get on well. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can see daylight now. Oh, here we are, where the lorry's coming. Just by the office. <laughs> so once the uh, stone comes up to the uh, surface here, it's all uh, measured uh, to calculate the cubic meterage uh, that you can get out of the stone. And it's also quality assured as well to make sure it's free from any defects or cricks in the stone. And the, uh, the way the guys do that is uh, still the tried and tested method where they'll actually use a, uh, a hammer to uh, ring the stone and by the tone of the hammer blow, they can tell whether there's any faults or joints within the stone. By the tone? Yeah. Do they measure that, or is it just done by hearing? It's by the uh, Mark I eardrum, that is. That's amazing. <laughs> so that's something that goes back 200 years. Yeah, it's still the same method that the old quarrymen would have used, and also uh, masons back in the day as well. They can hear the quality of the stone by the pitch of the hammer that's right yeah i love that i love that you see how important the audio world is <laughs> well that's it for this episode of footprints thank you for joining me don't forget you can listen to all the previous episodes anytime you like and please share as widely as you can with friends, family and colleagues. For more information on Bathscape, visit the website bathscape.co.uk. Thanks too to the National Lottery Heritage Fund and players of the National Lottery for supporting our work. Footprints was hosted and produced by me, Pommy Harmer, and I'll see you next month. <laughs>